Have you heard? 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 Welcome back to another edition of Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, our topic today is a trend that's sweeping the nation. The Macarena. (laughs) Not quite that cool. We're going to be talking about tax credit scholarships or neo-vouchers. And this is a sign. complicated. It is very complicated. And full confession, uh, our regular listeners know that you and I often dazzle and amaze with our knowledge of just deep one knowledge. or deep knowledge of one topic after another. And this one I have found to be a, a bit of a stretch. These schemes are so complicated that we are going to require some real expert guidance. We're going to be calling an H and R block. <laughs> we are going to be calling H and R block. I've got them, I've got them standing by. But in the meantime, I'm hoping that you can provide us with a little context. If we go back to the first episode we did, it was about vouchers, but really it was about neo-vouchers, which is uh, a new way of getting around the barriers that exist in a lot of states that keep public money from going to private religious schools. You're talking about Blaine Amendments. I am talking about Blaine Amendments. And it sounds like you want me to get into the time machine. I have never seen you look so excited about climbing into the time machine. Could there be a reason for that, Jack? Well, it seems like we finally found it in our budget to, uh, to get a sound effect. Jack, Jack can't wait to, to share this, the time machine sound effect with the world. Ready? I'm ready. <laughs> I think that means that I've been transported back to, to 1875. Uh, So the Blaine Amendments are named after Congressman James G. Blaine, uh, who in 1875 uh, kept with trends of the time and decided to pursue anti-Catholic legislation, uh, anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant legislation. So timely. Yes, in fact. Um, And so Blaine sought an amendment to the Constitution, uh, which actually passed uh, in the House overwhelmingly, and then didn't quite get the two-thirds majority it needed in the Senate. Um, and the Blaine Amendment uh, today looks fairly innocuous, um, and it's actually something that people would be on board with uh, if they didn't know of its anti-Catholic, uh, anti-immigrant uh, subtext. But uh, what ended up happening was that even though the Blaine Amendment did not pass uh constitutionally. A number of states decided that they were going to take it on uh, and ended up making amendments to their constitutions. And basically what these amendments, which became known as Blaine Amendments, ended up doing was uh, restricting uh, the channeling of state dollars to religious schools. Uh, And just one more piece of context here would be um, the anti-Catholic piece uh, was largely in education around the fact that Catholics had started their own system of schooling. Uh, and there actually was a Supreme Court case uh, that affirmed the right of Catholics to educate their children in Catholic schools. And that case was Pierce versus Society of Sisters, a uh, case that I believe was up in Oregon. Um, and so the the legacy of this, um, despite its uh, its nativist origins, uh, is one that, that 
seems to square with the belief that there ought to be some separation between church and state, um, state in this case being represented by tax dollars uh, and church being represented by religiously affiliated schools. Um, and so all but 10 states have these amendments um, and there have been efforts to repeal some of them. The most recent, I believe, was in Massachusetts where we're recording from uh, back in the 80s. And there was one successful repeal uh, and that was in Louisiana back in the 70s. There was a more recent one that just happened in, in Oklahoma and it also failed. And what's so it's so interesting listening to you because this is uh, this is a history that isn't actually that well known, and yet these amendments are on the books in so many states, and so much of our our current debate about school choice and uh, vouchers or neo vouchers has to do with developing these kind of elaborate, often obscure strategies for getting around what's on the books. Uh, because if you if you look at what happened most recently in Oklahoma, people seem still remarkably resistant to the idea of allowing taxpayer dollars to go to private religious institutions. Um, it's a good reminder that, uh, that no law happens by accident and that no, uh, no current uh, law is, is the product of an inevitable outcome. And so the separation that exists between uh, church and state, or in this specific case between public tax dollars and religious institutions, um, is something that was the product of intentional legislation, and sometimes, you know, with a little bit of an unsavory air to it. Um, but that is not something that uh, happened naturally, nor is it something that will exist forever. And in fact, there are conscious efforts to undermine uh, some of those Blaine Amendments right now, uh, with the idea being that uh, if if a neo-voucher scheme is going to work, that one of the kinds of schools that people need to be able to funnel money to uh, would be religious schools, religious K-12 schools. Well, we are, we're going to summon an expert now to take us through the most popular of these sort of workaround strategies, and these are the uh, tax credit scholarship. And we have Carl Davis standing by. He is not from H&R Block, as my co-host Insinuated, he's he, actually he works for TurboTax, <laughs> a competitor. He's actually from the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, or ITEP, and he wrote uh, a little study about uh, some of the more scamish elements of these tax credit scholarships that are now in seventeen states and growing. And um, and I think when his study first came out, it didn't get a lot of attention. And suddenly, people have woken up to the fact that legislation is being introduced in state after state, and there are some unintended and often intended consequences. So, Jack, I think you more than merited the use of that special sound effect with your brief history through Blaine amendments and and anti-Catholic nativism. And so, we're gonna take a quick break and come right back. Sounds good. Welcome back to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And we have a special guest on the line, not just a guest, but an expert. We're talking to Carl Davis, defensive end for the Baltimore Ravens. That is not the right Carl Davis, Jack. I'm gonna 
throw these notes that away. I, Carl Davis, the real Carl, Carl Davis from the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy Studies, let me apologize for my, my co-host's immaturity. Earlier in the episode, we did a little bit of historical background about the, the Blaine amendments that keep public taxpayer dollars from going to religious institutions. And Jack got to use a special time machine effect, and I'm afraid it, it got him a little too excited. But welcome to the show, Carl, and uh, thanks for coming on and agreeing to walk us through these tax credit scholarships that are really taking the world by storm. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, and I, I totally understand that mistake happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Carl, you did a you did a study last year, and suddenly you've gotten a, a lot of attention because it turns out that you're you're really one of the few people who's been keeping an eye on how tax credit scholarships work and where the potential for abuse lies at both the state and federal level and in some states how the the two different tax credits work together to make uh, particularly generous donors a pile of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know these tax credits have received more attention as education policies than as tax policies and I, I don't want to speak for the whole tax policy community. But go I, I go ahead. We, you we have our permission. <laughs> I, I don't think we as a group have paid enough attention to what's been going on here. Um, at state level, we now have 17 states that are offering uh, very, very generous tax credits for donors that, that give money to private school scholarship funds in order to help uh, students attend private K-12 schools. And these credits, in some cases, they, they range up to a 100% of the amount donated, which is just a highly unusual feature to have in the tax law. I mean, we, we, we've incentivized charity through the tax code. Uh, we've done this for decades with the charitable tax deduction. And on your state tax forms, if you donate a dollar to, to a food pantry or a homeless shelter or a veterans organization, that state tax deduction might save you five or ten cents. It's a, it's a little incentive at the margin for you to be generous with your money. Uh, these private school tax credits are very different than that. When you're reimbursing tax credits for 100% of the amount donated, there doesn't need to be any generosity at all involved on the taxpayer's part. And in fact, what we're finding is that in some cases, certain taxpayers are in a situation where they're able to game the system and are being advised by their accountants to to claim a state tax credit and a federal tax deduction on the same donation and actually turn a profit for their so-called generosity. I, I mean, at this point, I'm not sure the word charitable donation even applies. If you're, if you're turning a profit on the deal, there's nothing philanthropic going on. Can you just um, walk us through how, at the most basic level, these work? Um, because they're, even just reading about it, the, you know, the uh, the use of all these different nonprofits to distribute the funds. It's its a very complicated scheme. Make sure we understand the basics before we talk about all the different the different ways that, that donors can game these setups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the idea is, the, the underlying motivation here is that states want to spend public money on private schools. And a lot of times they can't do that either for political reasons. It's difficult to enact a, uh, that sort of spending or for constitutional reasons like these Blaine amendments. Uh, they're not allowed to spend public funds on religious schools, which most private schools do tend to be 
religious and orientation. Um, so what they've done is set up a more elaborate tax credit system that allows them to accomplish the same goal, um, but that lets them get around these either political hurdles or constitutional hurdles. So what happens is they give these very generous incentives, 90% or 100% of your donated amount, uh, to try to spur their wealthy residents to give money to private school scholarship funds. And then those private school scholarship funds disperse scholarships to students who then, or to parents of, of students, and then that money finds its way into the private school, ultimately. So there's a multi-layered system here, and that's part of the reason uh, why these are, are more, they're less transparent, they're harder to track, uh, and I think it's opened up some of these opportunities for gaming because they're just poorly understood in a lot of cases. What's going on here? I think we're going to want to come back to talk more about uh, these tax credit scholarships as financial instruments. But while we were on the topic, you mentioned uh, that um, the money is then given to schools, which they can uh, give to students in the form of scholarships. And one thing that I wanted to point out here uh, in terms of uh, a lack of transparency is that unlike, let's say, a charter school, uh, which cannot engage in a selective admissions process, a private school can. And so in selecting the students uh, who are eligible for these scholarships, these private schools can engage, uh, to my understanding, in a process uh, that, you know, whether it uh, is choosing the most able students uh, insofar as they are able to to select more able students who are eligible for these scholarships or selecting them on some other uh, criterion um, that, that we don't actually know because uh, they don't have to be transparent about their admissions uh, policies and processes. Um, and that uh, ultimately there is far less accountability than if these dollars were being taken directly out of the state treasury and given to schools, which, as Carl noted, uh, in many cases, they can't do, or uh, they can do, but you know they would encounter political obstacles. And so instead, they are uh, basically receiving the money in the treasury and then giving right back to these donors uh, as a way of dodging that. But as a result, uh, we end up having less accountability and far less transparency. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think the proponents of, of these tax credit vouchers are oftentimes very transparent about what they're trying to do. And there's a, there's a number of strategic documents out there show, that look at every single state and say, well, your constitution mm-hmm. doesn't seem to allow vouchers, but you can do the exact same thing to a tax credit instead. So why don't you go that route? It's, it, it's not that, you know, it's not that the, the tax credits are different. Uh, substantively, but for some reason they just have an easier time uh, in the legal process. Carl, can you talk at all about uh, how we might end up in a position where a state is giving a dollar-for-dollar tax credit? So this is not people uh, taking a dollar off of their taxable income. This is them donating a dollar to uh, one of these uh, private school uh, scholarship funds, and then receiving that dollar back from the state, and then being able to take that dollar off of their uh, their their federal income tax, their taxable income. Uh, how how does a situation like that uh, come to be? Uh, I mean, it's it seems uh, somewhat nefarious, but I don't want to make assumptions about that. Oh, I'm go wondering. ahead, make assumptions. It, it is it is nefarious. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
it's it, it's unclear how how much of this was intentional versus unintentional, but the result is absolutely egregious. Um, so yes, you you described it correctly. A taxpayer can donate. I believe in Alabama, for example, they can donate up to fifty thousand dollars to a private school scholarship fund, uh, and then happily ask their their state government for their full fifty thousand dollars right back. Um, and after they've done that, the the thing that that is is most remarkable about this is that the IRS at the moment is allowing that same taxpayer to to fill out their federal tax form and say, well, look at this very generous $50,000 donation I just made. Can I please have a federal tax deduction as well? And the result is that when you add up the state tax credit of 50 grand and then a federal tax deduction that might be worth 10 or 15 grand on top of that, that extra 10 or 15 grand is just risk-free, profit, untaxed. It's it's just in their pocket, and it's and the program is being advertised this way. I, I there was a wealth management firm in Virginia that was very candid about it and has a line uh, on their guidance to their their customers along the lines of you might not agree with the tax law, it's not always logical, but you should take advantage of the benefits as long as they exist, and they definitely exist right now. Um, and, and there are a few states like Virginia where where things get even more outrageous. Um, Hey, the situation I just described where you get a state tax credit and a federal tax deduction, that's pretty clearly double-dipping. There are a handful of states where you can actually triple-dip, and you can get a state tax credit and a federal tax deduction, but not only that, you also get a state tax deduction on top of it. My jaw literally so, just, I just, my jaw <laughs> dropped in outrage. I just made an actual, like a triple-dip expression. We're going to need a triple-dip well, I mean, sound that was my reaction as well. <laughs> Um, Carl, I've got a, a question about um, about how regressive uh, all of this ends up being as tax policy, um, and so you know that seems to me to be a product of the fact that uh, my guess would be we have wealthy individuals who are utilizing uh, these tax credits, and so it would actually end up uh, lowering the tax burden of uh, wealthier individuals. Here um, and uh, and I'm wondering, you know, the the degree to the degree to which there's any data available. Um, do we know how much this is ends up just being a subsidy for the wealthy? The data are limited. It's state by state, but yes, it's safe to say that this is a program overwhelmingly geared towards the wealthy, and there are a few reasons for that. Uh, the first is that the the donor. While ultimately they can end up getting all their money back or even making a profit in some situations, they need to have the money up front. But you have to have someone on a savings. You have to have someone on a wealth to draw from to participate in this. Um, also, to use these tax credits, you, you have to have a, a sizable enough income uh, that you're paying a lot of, of income tax in order to apply the credit against. Um, and then the third reason that this is overwhelmingly uh, for the wealthy is is that at the federal level, right now, this is primarily limited to taxpayers who happen to fall uh, under what's called the alternative minimum tax. And that's a, a tax designed to make sure that uh, taxpayers that are able to take advantage of a lot of tax breaks still pay some minimum amount of tax, some basic minimum tax. And um, so those taxpayers are overwhelmingly earning over two hundred grand a year, and over eighty percent are over two hundred grand. And many of them are earning significantly more than that. Um, so, so it is clear this is not a a tax scheme uh, that that every ordinary taxpayer can 
to go take advantage of right now to make a buck. This is this is something geared for a small subset of taxpayers with the resources to take advantage of it. We've got Carl Davis on the line. Carl is uh, worked with the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy. Did I get that right, Carl? Uh, the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. That's the most. Uh, but we she get struggles with time. prepositions. It's 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 true. Okay. It's true. I won't hold it against you. The um, you know, this is the time of year when you know we're hearing a lot about tax credits, but you know we're all doing our taxes too, and and I'm always reminded that I am simply not in the, in, I'm not playing in the the same rarefied space as a lot of the people who are making these donations, um, and I think it's when we talk about this stuff, it's easy to think that it it doesn't really have any effect. On on this sort of you know on the the larger larger coffers, and I think that's part of the strategy of pushing these things. That no one really understands what a tax credit is. They think it's free, but I was struck by in the big de- debate that just happened in Arkansas, um, the senator there, the Republican who's the head of the education committee, said, you know, look at the end of the day, this means less money that the state has to spend on education and that that really had an, an impact the 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 measure that you know it caused people to to step back from that but i wondered if you could talk a little bit about that the the idea that you know it's not just that the wealthy are benefiting it's that the the larger system takes a whack as well yeah this is absolutely a drain on the revenues available to fund public education or or to fund any other public service for that matter um all the state level tax breaks that exist right now for for private k through twelve schools they're they're draining about a billion dollars a year in revenue and there's every reason to think that number is going to grow substantially in the years ahead um uh, at least a, a dozen states or so are talking about expanding their tax credits for private schools or enacting completely new ones. And uh, they might actually be spurred on by the federal government in that regard as well. There's been speculation that there could be incentives coming down uh, from Washington to encourage states to adopt these types of tax credits. And, and if that happens, we'll see an even larger drain on the revenues available to, to fund uh, traditional public education. Carl, we've talked largely about these scholarship tax credits, but I'm wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about uh, tax credits that parents can take for the private school tuition that they're paying in some states. Yeah, these are uh, somewhat less common, um, and as far as I'm aware, there's, there's no way to actually turn a profit on, on these. Uh, these, are, these are more traditional uh, way of, of subsidizing uh, an expense. Um, that that people who choose to send their children to, to private schools are facing. Um, in a lot of cases, I mean, some of the problems with this, aside from from the fact that it still does amount to a, a, a public subsidy of a private institution, um, I, there are problems with the way that a lot of these are structured. Um, if they're offered as tax deductions, for example, uh, those tend to be most valuable, again, to taxpayers in higher tax brackets. So, for example, if you're in a state and you're in your state top tax bracket is 7%, um, every dollar deduction you get on your tax form will save you $0.07, cents, whereas if you're in a lower tax bracket of 3 or 4%, then that same dollar deduction, that same dollar expense 
that you're paying in, in private school tuition. That'll only save you three or four cents. So in general, tax deductions tend to be upside down in their effect and just giving larger incentives and larger dollar payments to taxpayers with significant incomes. Um, but these are, these do exist. They're, they're significantly less common, uh, and there's less push to expand them, uh, it seems, than the scholarship tax credits we've been talking about. I have to say that my daily resolution to spend more time raging against the wealthy is not going well today, and I, I have you to blame for that, Carl Davis. <laughs> you Very mentioned sorry about that. We've, there, are, uh, there are currently 17 states that have tax credit scholarships up and running. Uh, the new proposals are popping up all the time. What should people really focus on when, uh, someone, when uh, legislation is introduced in their state? What are the um, what are the worst sort of as far as the way the programs are structured? Where are the worst potentials for abuse? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're right that these are these are popping up everywhere. Part of the reason for that, uh, I think it's worth mentioning, is is that um, a, a group of conservative legislators called the American Legislative Exchange Council actually have model language for these credits up on their website uh, that any lawmaker can just copy and paste and introduce in their own state. So that's part of the reason we're seeing these introduced so many places because it's just they've made it very easy to do. In education, um, that's referred to as replicating best practices or cheating, <laughs> right? Um, but we uh, we see these. I mean, they're they're spreading quickly. The thing that the thing that I always take note of is when when they're offering an incentive to to, to donate to to a, a charity. Uh, these private school scholarship funds do count as charities. Why these states that are offering seventy percent, eighty percent, one hundred percent credits? Why is it that they're 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 deciding that private schools are far more deserving than any other charity uh, that you could possibly imagine? So when you see that credit amount being very large, uh, especially a one hundred percent credit, it it's clear that it, it's not only is our our private school charities being incentivized or being subsidized far heavier than any other charity. But when you see a 100% credit, you're not even asking the, the so-called donors to have any skin in the game. This is not a, a public-private partnership of any type. Um, we, frankly, the donors don't have to have any interest in private schools. Um, if they get all of their money back, um, they're, all they're doing is acting as middlemen in an exchange of moving public money into private schools. Frankly, I mean... In a lot of ways, this situation has some strong resemblances to money laundering. It's it's legal, but if the if the goal of this is to conceal the fact that money is coming from the state in order to, to get around these Blaine amendments, in a lot of cases, they want to conceal that fact, and they're asking high income donors to act middlemen in this in this transfer of of a, of, of the full donation amount from the state to the private school, and in some cases, the wealthy donors are turning a profit in the exchange. I mean, I, I don't see how you can't help but draw the parallels to money laundering. It certainly has a, more of a resemblance to money laundering than to charitable giving. There's no charitable incentive when 100% state tax credit is offered. So I think there's, this is, this is something that, that needs to be taken much more seriously. I'm, I'm not, I think it's been under scrutinized uh, in tax policy circles, as I mentioned. If we did have a jaw drop uh, sound effect, I would have hit it again when you used the phrase money laundering because Jennifer actually had to use both hands to bring her her jaw up off of my kitchen table here where we're recording today. 
Carl, I want to thank you for coming by and talking to us and walking us through tax credit scholarships and what people should be wary of. When uh, when we share this with the world, I'll, uh, I'll link to your study because it was really great, very substantive, and, and really explained why these are something that, that people need to cast a wary eye on. So thank you, Carl. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Carl. Jack, I feel much more knowledgeable now about tax credit scholarships than I did 24 minutes ago. Carl did a good job of explaining what I'm sure is several hundred pages of tax code in you know a, a few uh, a few English language sentences. Well, it it really made me think about the role that incentivizing charitable giving plays in all of this. And if you're if you pay any attention to the debates over the future of public education, we talk a lot about philanthropy and and the role that that venture philanthropists have played. I saw you, I could see your thought bubble light up when when he was talking about the the role that charitable giving plays in all of this. Yeah, there was no jack chart this week. But uh, you know, it is really interesting to think about how um, particularly wealthy donors, uh, since they are are playing with the most number of dollars here, are able to extract dollars from uh, the coffers of state or federal government um, through the tax code, um, through their charitable uh, contributions, um, as a means of enacting their own wishes rather than perhaps you know the the wishes of uh, of the public. Right. And so in this case, when you're talking about just a traditional charitable contribution, I'm going to put my H&R Block hat on right now, um, you're able to subtract the number of dollars that you have given uh, to a charity from your income, from your taxable income. And so that's not the sort of dollar for dollar credit that Carl was talking about, uh, but for those who are paying uh Know, whatever the highest bracket is, thirty-five percent. It's been lowered twenty-seven point five percent for those of for those who are paying about a third of their income uh, to uh, the federal government um, for their for their earned income. Uh, they are able to shear off uh, those number of dollars from their income, meaning that they're not paying taxes on those dollars. Uh, they're then giving those dollars to a charity, but the charity they may be giving it to may not be one that aligns with uh, public values, right? So they may be supporting a charity that um, you know gives uh, potted plants to dogs. Uh, and as long that as that's not a charity, as long Jack. as it's a five hundred one c three, well, it might be by the end of this episode. Um, as long as it's five hundred one c three, they can do this. And so I think you know this is an example of something that we've talked about in previous episodes of a shifting away from a public notion of uh, of what is good, right? The public good, and towards a a, a more private understanding of it. Um, and so. You know the way that I I think about it is that there was once this moment not too long ago uh, between the Gilded Age and the age we live in, the Second Gilded Age, when there was this notion that those who had more were responsible for giving more, and that we were all in this together. Uh, this is obviously not an idea that was uh, that was cherished by all members of our society, um, but increasingly the framing is that. Uh, that those who are giving are choosing to give, that they are not obligated to give, uh, and that therefore 
we should uh, be allowing them to choose as much as possible where they want those dollars to go. And as much as people dislike paying taxes, the fact is uh, that once those taxes are collected, they belong to the public. Um, and that the public can then decide where they want those revenues spent and how they want them spent. And when they're private, uh, that those dollars and, uh, and their eventual landing place are determined uh, and governed by private individuals, which really undermines the ability of the public um, to, to shape uh, the kind of uh, society that they want to live in. I think that's such a good point. We talk about our our show as education in the time of Trump, and there are some particular themes that come up again and again. And one of them is what a uh, that we see a much smaller, more shrunken vision for the role that the state plays. We see that in the Trump proposed budget. We see that in the health care plan, and we see that in a vision for education that lets the wealthy opt out from educating the collective. And we're, you know, it, we use a lot of, we're, we're using relatively dry, jargony terms, tax credit scholarship. But at the end of the day, when, when there's no longer a collective sense of education as a public enterprise, it's going to be much harder to do things like raise money to pay for schools. And that's, you know, we, we have to think about that. Yeah. And the, the last point that I would make about that is not, not just that. Uh, there is an absence of a democratic decision-making process, but also that when this is not a public process, uh, and this is something that came up in our conversation with Carl, then it ends up not being a particularly transparent process, and it really opens up opportunities for inequity. Um, there's already a lot of inequity in our system, but you know something that continued to come up in my mind in our conversation there was, you know, when private schools end up with these dollars that they can give away as scholarships, and this was a you know a, a comment disguised as a question, or or maybe it wasn't even disguised when I was talking to Carl, um, you know who they give those dollars to is entirely up to them. There are people who complain about charters uh, creaming or driving students out, um, but the reason that they can complain is that it is a transparent process, and there are public records of all of this. Um, and when you begin to move that into the private realm, you actually undermine the ability of the public to track this and to even complain at all. Well, I, I'm amazed at how much I enjoyed our conversation about tax credit scholarships and neo-vouchers. And uh, I'm, um, I'm going to be sharing Carl's study with the world because it was that good. Keep an eye on what's going on in your state. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode of Have You Heard? Thanks for listening. I'm Jack Schneider. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. 